Well, let's turn together this morning to the book of Colossians, and we're going to begin this, begin chapter number two in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter number two. When we began our study here in this epistle, uh, chapter one, we gave it the title of the incomparable Christ. And for chapter number two, and we're going to be working with this theme throughout chapter two, is complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. Paul's great emphasis in chapter two is to remind, to edify, to encourage the believers at Colossae that they are in fact complete in Christ. There's a number of things that Paul makes us aware of. He makes us aware that he is in a great conflict over them. In other words, when he considers them and he thinks about what they're facing, he certainly is burdened for them. Not only does he have a conflict, but he has a great concern. This great concern is that they are being faced with things that certainly are trying their faith. Uh, There are things that are bringing them to the place where they're beginning to question, are they truly complete? Do they truly have all that they need in Christ Jesus? But then we also see that he means to bring these words as words that are comforting to them. He is not using this as a stinging rebuke of them, but instead he is giving this as a great reminder that no matter what comes their way, they are in fact complete in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul expresses this great concern for them. He had never seen this group of believers. Sometimes we forget that. As far as we know, Paul had never met the Colossians face to face. And yet he exhorts them to not only take comfort in their completeness in Christ, but to remain constant in their faith in Christ. Now, unlike or not unlike us today, he's going to warn them. And the great warning is coming from the false teachers who would, with intention, try to add or to take away from this completeness in Christ. So what he does is he reminds them of their blessings. He reminds them of not only their blessings, but their privileges, their source of rejoicing, but he also cautions them. The church at Colossae, not unlike some of the other churches that he wrote to, superstitions were beginning to creep in. Superstitious worship, superstitious corruptions, Things were beginning to be accepted as part of this church or part of the body. Now, again, when something is complete, nothing else is to be added to it. When something is complete, nothing else is to be added to it. Our completeness in Christ means just that. It is already complete. There is nothing that can be added to it, nor should there be anything taken away from it. Now, we're going to study this chapter in a truly line-by-line, precept-by-precept fashion. I'm not going to give you headings. I'm just simply going to say, here's verse 1. Let's expound it. We'll speak of what it means. And we're just going to go right down the line, and we will get as far as we can today, and then we'll just stop and we'll pick up again next week. 
But knowing all these things that Paul is writing about, knowing who the audience is, noting, noting what the context is, notice Paul begins this chapter by saying, I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. You see, Paul's concerns were well beyond just the church at Colossae. Paul had great concerns and great conflict for many believers whom he had never seen. Uh, this really shows us a lot about the humility of the Apostle Paul, how he was concerned and his soul was in conflict for even believers who were being bombarded constantly with false teachings that were attempting to add to their completeness in Christ. Paul had never met these brethren at the Colossian churches, but he had heard of their faith. He had heard of the hope and the love that these churches had. So he desired to care for them and to care for them in a proper and a continual way. We'll see this in just a moment, but he speaks about their hearts and how important it is to understand that he had a great concern for them in his own heart. His heart was overwhelmed with the need to be in conflict. Notice he says, not just conflict, that I am in great conflict for you. A conflict that is so burdensome, it has become the very forefront of my heart and the very front of my minds. But what does he do? He carried them to the Lord in prayer. Paul was a praying man. Paul prayed diligently. Uh, Paul was not one of those who said, when nothing else works and all else fails, then pray. No, Paul was a prayer first. Paul was one who prayed because he understood not just are we commanded to pray, but that it is the very joy and the reward of our faith is to pray, not only privately, but to pray corporately and to pray together. He carried the care that he had for them, not always in preaching to them, but carrying his concern and his conflict for them before the Lord in prayer. Paul certainly had them on his hearts. But notice verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Notice that their hearts might be comforted. Paul desired that their hearts would be comforted. What a word, to be comforted. To be comforted and to know the love of God. How are they comforted? And notice he says, here's where your comfort comes from. And I, church, I hope we take notice of this. Being knit together in love. Paul is saying that the great source of the comfort of the heart is when believers' hearts are knit together in love. And that is supposed to happen at every level of church life. If our hearts at our church are not knit together in love, we are not going to find comfort and we are not going to find peace and you will not find satisfaction. Yet this is not a knit together in love that is based upon what I emotionally feel. It's based upon the knitting together of love and who we are in Christ. 
We know that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, Paul wanted them to know God. And he wants them to rest in comfort in what God has already revealed to them. You know, the church at Colossae had the same problem that you and I have. We have a tendency to keep looking somewhere else. We have a tendency to keep trying to find something more than Christ. And I'm I'm telling you, brethren, this morning, you can look high, you can look low, you can look far, you can look close. You are not going to find any more completeness than what you already are in Christ. And yet, why do believers keep doing it? Why do we keep trying to find comfort and hope and help in something else when Paul says you're already complete in Christ? He saw a tendency in them to look abroad. He's reminding them, be knit together in love and to all the riches of the, look at this, full assurance of understanding. When you have an understanding of who God is, when you have a true knowledge, you will lose your desire to try to find hope and satisfaction and comfort somewhere else. If you're looking somewhere else, it's because you don't know God the way you should. You don't know and have understanding the way you should. If you're continuing to look abroad, trying to find something to tack on, you still don't understand the living God. That's what Paul is battling, and he's going to remind them that how this is happening is because there are those who are bringing in superstitious thoughts, things that you need to do to make these things a certainty. Full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. The mystery of God. We have been revealed to us the mysteries of God, the mystery of God and the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christ is more than enough. Christ is our satisfaction. Now, if there's a man who's ever lived whose life proved that his satisfaction is in Christ that ought to make us sit up and take notice, it's the Apostle Paul. If that man said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that my satisfaction is in Christ. For us not to take notice of that would be the ultimate picture of pride. To say, yes, but not me. Yes, but not my life. Paul was content that the gospel is Jesus Christ alone, and he found satisfaction in that. He wasn't trying to look abroad and see what else can I add on to make my life better. Paul gave his very life for the gospel. Paul understood what it was to be complete in Christ. He was more than satisfied with it. He wanted them to be satisfied with Christ alone. Gill said about this, these, this verse, he said, In Christ are stored up all the riches of God's grace and glory. In Him are stored all wisdom and knowledge. Don't look for anything pertaining to God's mercy, grace, and righteousness anywhere but in Christ. There is in Christ everything necessary to salvation. Paul says in verse 3 about Christ, in whom are hid all, notice the word all, all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need is in Christ. All the riches, 
all the grace, all the glory. Don't look anywhere else. Now, Paul uses those first three verses to then demonstrate to them, here's what his concern is. And this I say, or this is the reason why I'm saying this to you, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Beguilers are ones who set out to intentionally deceive. Now, what we need to understand about beguilers is that they do not openly contradict the gospel. A beguiler is a person who will pretend to have a great affection for God, a great affection for Christ, and a great admiration for the gospel. But here's what they're guilty of. Then they attempt to tear, to rip, to destroy the very heart out of it with their own words of wisdom. In other words, they say, we believe the gospel. We believe our satisfaction is in Christ. But then with their own words, they tear at the very heart of who Christ is and what the gospel is. You see, beguilers are not easy to detect. Beguile, to beguile means to deceive with intention. This is not random deception. This is not deception that is unintentional. This is intentional deception. That's a beguiler. So that's why Paul reminds them of their standing first. I want you to know the concern I have for you. I want you to know this conflict. I want you to know this comfort, but I want to warn you. Here's what's happening. Here's what's coming. Notice Paul says in verse 5, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Absent in the flesh. I'm not with you yet I'm with you in spirit. Now again, with you in spirit has become sort of a Christian cliche over the years. Sometimes we'll say something like this, I will not be able to be there, I will not be able to attend with you, but I will be with you in spirit. It's to suggest that I'm there with you even though I can't be there with you in bodily presence. And again, I understand what the meaning is. Again, but I'm going to sit up and take notice if the Apostle Paul says, I'm there with you in spirit, his testimony suggests I can take him at his word. Paul was not there in spirit because he was unable to be there bodily. And you see, Paul was writing most of these letters from a prison cell. Yet he's still talking about your comfort, not mine. Your concern, the concern I have for you, not the concern for my bonds, not the concern for my chains, but the concern I have for you. Let me ask you, brethren, how many people are not going to listen to a man who has that kind of love for people? Who has a love and a concern for the church the way Paul did? Most of us, if we're honest before God, if we're sitting in a prison cell, we're not concerned about anybody else but ourselves. That's our human nature. And how am I going to get out of these chains? How am I going to get out? But yet he says, I'm with you in spirit. And look at this, joining and beholding your order. Now again, these are terms of organization. 
Some say they're military. Some say they're just organization in the way that we think about things. But Paul just says, listen, that you are standing fast. And I behold it, the steadfastness of your faith, notice, in Christ. Paul never forgot them. And it was the true joy of his heart when he got word that they were standing fast. My friends, keep in mind, Paul couldn't get an instant message or a text how the church was doing. Sometimes these words about how these churches were doing would take weeks, sometimes months. But he says, I've heard of it, and I'm rejoicing with you, and I'm beholding what I'm hearing. So what Paul gets ready to demonstrate here is the sorrow that would be in his heart if they ever went away and were ever seduced by these beguilers. Again, he returns back to what they should know about their completeness. Verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, don't turn away, don't even think about going beyond the completeness of Christ. This is a settled matter. Notice he doesn't say, as you've therefore received church membership, as you've therefore received baptism, although those are important. He says, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ when you were first made able to see? How did you first receive Christ when you were first able to hear? You know what our salvation really was when we first received him? It was an entire, full, and complete trust. Complete. Entirely. True salvation knows that your entire salvation rests upon Christ's finished work alone. Not a single ounce of anything else you offer. Completeness. As you've received that, when you first trusted, Paul is saying here, walk. Walk entirely. Satisfied with Christ when you first received him. Be satisfied fully, completely with him now. It's an amazing journey between when we first receive Christ, how our satisfaction is in Christ alone, and yet a few years down the road, suddenly we're not totally satisfied with Christ. We want something else. We want something more. If you're not complete in Christ today, you're not complete at all. If you're saying, I'm complete in Christ, but I need something more, I need to, I need to look out, I need to expand, I need to spread out my wings, and I, I, need, I need to just add to this, then you're not satisfied with Christ. Often we try to find something else to satisfy us that's the world's satisfaction, and we think that that's satisfied with Christ. The question this morning that Paul was reminding them and the question we ought to ask ourselves today, are you still completely satisfied with Christ? Or you still need something more? Brethren, there's nothing more than Christ to find. I don't know what you're looking for. I don't know where you're looking, but you're not going to find it. 
To be complete in Christ means I've already acquired it. I already have it. There is nothing more than Christ. So he says, walk in what you already know. To walk means you obey what's been taught. Sometimes our satisfaction in Christ is a result of us just refusing to obey. We read passages like we read in our scripture in this morning of Jeremiah 13, and we say, we listen to how did, why did they refuse to hear? We can be the same way. The Word of God tells us what to do. The Word of God tells us how to walk, tells us where to go, tells us what not to do, and we just refuse to hear it. And then we wonder, why am I always looking for something else? Most of our lack of satisfaction is because we're looking for something else. I love the metaphors he gives here in verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. To be rooted and to be built, it means to take a living hold on Christ. The word rooted is there intentionally because it's meant to draw our attention to the roots of a tree. Now, you, don't, you can't see it in most cases. But the life of that tree is not above ground. The life of that tree is underground when the roots of that tree root themselves in the soil. He's using that as a metaphor about how you are to be rooted in Christ Jesus. Strongly rooted in Christ. When those roots take hold, what happens? The tree rises up. That's the built up part he's referring to. When the roots are connected properly, it will build up. It settles down. He uses a building term again. He says, established in the faith. Again, I love, I love Gill's commentary on this. Rooted and built up in him, this is a metaphor taken from trees deeply rooted. The grip with which faith lays hold on Christ is like a tree deeply rooted in the ground. Its strength, nourishment, life, and fruit are supplied from him. Built up in him is a metaphor taken from a building fastened to a foundation. The shape and the stability of the building are determined by the foundation. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.11, it makes sense, even more sense now what he was saying. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Every other foundation is like building on sand. Anything you are trying to find instead of Christ is like building on sand. It has no stability. It will not hold you. When the floods come and the rains come and washes it out, it's because your foundation was faulty. Christ is the only sure foundation. Established as you have been taught abounding therein with thanksgiving. When a man or a person is established in the truth that he knows, he doesn't go seeking for another way. He rejoices in what he already has. You realize even in our own intentions of Bible study, sometimes we can go seeking for something more. 
thinking that if I know just a little bit more, then my assurance will grow a little bit deeper. Your assurance is not based upon what you know more of, but who you know. Now, should you study to show thyself approved? Absolutely. But that's not where your assurance comes from. Your assurance comes from the fact that you are complete in Christ. Your desire to know more is a, is a, a branch out of already being in Christ. Not to make yourself more certain about what you believe. When you already are established in the faith, you're not looking for more. You've already found that you already have it all. Christ is our complete foundation. Established in the faith. Notice Paul says, as ye have been taught. And I don't want to go too far off where I'm going here. But one of the most dangerous places for someone to be in, even believers, is when they refuse to be taught. They become unteachable. And every one of us is prone to that. To where we just simply say, I don't need to be taught anymore. I've been saved a long time. I don't need to be taught. Paul says, no, what you're resting is in is what you have been taught about your completeness in Christ. You're established in that. When you're established in the truth, you rejoice in what you already have received. You don't go away from that. You don't grow weary of old truths being repeated over and over again. You're established in proper doctrine. You realize how long this little church has been trying to get established in proper doctrine? Do you realize how many messages have been taught? Do you realize how many things we are trying to continually remind what the Bible teaches? It's to establish you. It's so that you cannot be moved away from your completeness in Christ. That's, what, that's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we're methodical about it. I don't want any of this flock to have any doubts at all about their standing in Christ. I want you to know the Bible says rejoice in your completeness. Rejoice in it. Don't rejoice in the false teachers he's going to talk about here in a moment whose glory has nothing to do with God, but those who simply glory in the flesh. People that are established in the truth, they're not easily offended. They're not driven about with every wind of doctrine. They are firmly established. You cannot blow that building down. The gospel being preached doesn't offend them. The commandments don't offend them. Convicting passages don't offend them. Even the hard sayings don't offend them because they want to know their Lord more and more. They're growing. And then Paul uses that word, verse 8, beware. Take notice. Be on guard. Don't look away, lest any man spoil you. And he says specifically what they're going to do. Through philosophy and vain deceit. Beware of those who pretend that they're actually, they're going to edify you. They're going to make your life better, that they're going to enrich you, but whose real object is to rob you. The original word 
when it says spoil is actually the word plunder. I actually like that word better. The word plunder, it, it, it means to rob you and leave nothing, to take it all. If they could, they would even take away your completeness in Christ. They'll take it. That's what their object is. How will they come to you? Telling you they're there to rob you? No, they're going to come telling you, I have something that will enrich you. I have something that will make your life and make you live the more abundant Christian life. Not that old crusty doctrine that you're hearing every single Sunday. I've got something that will make you vibrant and alive. You know how many people are being driven away by that kind of teaching? Who have been convinced and deceived? It's just not vibrant enough for me. It's not active enough. I'm uncomfortable when there's these periods of quietness when we enter into the building. I, I don't know what to do. Maybe think upon Christ in those quiet moments. They'll say to you, we have some advanced thought. We have some deeper ideas that are, that are that, that, they're not going to destroy your, they're just going to enhance it. They're going to make it a little bit better. That's what vain deceit and philosophy is. The, pro the problem with philosophy is, is if it's done wrongly, it doesn't have a true answer. And notice Paul says, after the tradition of men. What that means is, he said, what they're bringing to you can't be found anywhere in the Scriptures. Do you see why I'm always in, in, encouraging us to make sure you know your Bible? How are you going to know that you're not being deceived by some vain philosophy if you don't know what the Bible says? They're going to enrich you. They're going to add vibrancy to your Christian life. They're going to bring sunshine to your soul. But their traditions can't be found in Scripture. The rudiments of the world. You know what that means? That means it has its Beginnings, it has its foundation in the world system, not the Word of God. This, right here, verse 8, is what is infecting the churches today. And it is attempting to infect this one. We are not free from this. We are just as much called to be aware of this. Be aware of the rudiments of the world. Be aware of the vain deceit. Be aware of philosophy. Be aware of those who come saying, we're going to enrich your Christian experience. Let me ask you this morning, how much more of an experience beyond Christ do you really need? If you truly understand what Christ did for you, you can't even think of anything else because he is all you need. You've gone beyond, Paul saying, you're going beyond the elementary teachings of the word and you're accepting useless knowledge. People say, well, you need this. It'll make the church better. It'll make the church more effective. 
It will make people want to attend your services. If the word of God is not enough and Jesus Christ is not enough of an attraction for you, nothing will ever be enough. It won't. Those who understand their completeness in Christ aren't looking for anything else. We're not looking for a better way to enhance your experience when you come in on Sunday mornings. It never enters into my mind how to make it more vibrant for you. It only comes to my mind, how do I continually, through the word of God and through the influence of the Spirit, preach unto you Christ so that you get more and more and more rooted and built up and established? I have no concern about being vibrant because I know the greatest source of your satisfaction is when you're reminded of the truths that ought to be precious to us. And then Paul says maybe one of the greatest statements in all the word of God, and I know that that's a dogmatic, but I'm, that's not overemphasizing this. Look what he says. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The him is Christ. For in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We just learned this past Wednesday night about the Godhead. We can only worship properly the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When you look at Christ, you see the completeness of God. You see the fullness of life. So many people are looking how to have a full life. There is no full life in this world. But there is a full life in this world in Christ Jesus, not only materially, but also spiritually. In him dwelleth, there's another complete word, fullness. Not full, leaving just the top to add a little bit more to it, but completely full. You can't add anything else to it. You can't add any more to him. He's already the fullness. And here's that word. This is why, the, this is why chapter 2 is this theme. And ye are complete in him. The him that's mentioned in verse 9. Complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now we're going to read verse 11, but we're going to come back and do verse 11 next week because we're running low on time. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here's quickly what Paul is making mention of. First of all, you are complete. Not here's what will make you complete. You are complete. Which is the head, that means the preeminent one, that's Christ, of all principality and power. There is none that is above him. Everything that you could possibly think or imagine or desire is in Christ. To be in Christ means you're actually in Christ. Not just in some mystical way. You're actually unified. You're in Christ Jesus. Now, why is Paul talking about circumcision here? Because one of the desires of these beguilers were the Jews. And the Jews would boast 
in their circumcision physically. What Paul means here by these verses is that you have spiritually all that circumcision meant literally. In other words, what they have and what they're boasting is does not make them complete. What you have spiritually circumcision, you are complete. Even though you've not wounded yourself, let's use it that way, you have much more than that. Now remember, when the Jews and the Gentiles came into the same churches, realized the Gentiles didn't even understand some of the Jews' beliefs because it wasn't for the Jews, it was for the Gentiles. So Paul, no doubt here, is talking that there are, there are even where you are at Colossae, there are Jews and Gentiles who are together. You have much more than that. You have the very death of sin. The very death when you have been buried with Christ. When he talks about circumcision here, again, he's speaking about completeness. All that circumcision can possibly mean, you already have in Christ. There is nothing more. There's nothing you can do to add to it. Complete in him. Next week, we'll pick up in verse 12. And again, one of the very high marks of what Paul says, so many things he says here, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. What a glorious truth that is. So next week we'll pick up in verse number 12 and we'll, again, we'll go verse by verse and we'll see um, how far the Lord lets us go next Lord's day. Amen.